Yeah. Okay, this morning we have the pleasure of reading Parsha's Yisro. And I want to dedicate today's uh, learning to the Rafua Shlema of Sarah Zlata Bas Guta, our own Sarah Skatchelis, who's having uh, surgery right now as we speak. And as well, a, a baby was born to the Berman family, Ben and Elizabeth Berman, members of our shul two days ago. Unfortunately, the baby had a four-hour surgery yesterday and is having another surgery today and is very, very, very much in need of a Rafua Shlema. Tinokas Bas Elisheva Malka. So, uh, Tinokas Bas Elisheva Malka. So please have in mind both uh, the baby and Sarah Skatchelis uh, as we learn this morning. Parsha Yisro, as we know, is a seminal Parsha in the Torah because it contains within it the Decalogue. It contains within it the Aseris Adibros or Aseris Advarim, or however you want to say it, the Ten Commandments. The Parsha begins, though, we'll, we'll uh, as we always do, give a brief overview of the Parsha and then get into the analysis of the Pesukim we'll look at this morning. The Parsha begins with the arrival of Moshe Rabbeinu. With, I'm sorry, the arrival of Yisro. <laughs> The arrival of Yisra, maybe I'm just thrown off a little bit because my in-laws are coming tomorrow night, so I'm thrown <laughs> off a little bit. The, um, the arrival of Yisra, Moshe's father-in-law, uh, Tzipporah's father, comes and he joins the Jewish people. You know what they say, behind every successful man is a very surprised father-in-law. So the uh, Yisra shows up. <laughs> Yisro arrives, he heard something, Vayishma Yisro, the parsha begins, Yisro heard something, and uh, the Pasuk tells us exactly what he heard, Kiyotzi Hashem Mitzrayim, that God had taken the Jews out of Egypt. But despite the Pasuk telling us exactly what he heard, nevertheless Rashi quotes from the Gemara Zvachem, Mashmu Shama Uba, what did Yisro hear? Did he hear about Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea? Did he hear about the ten plagues? Did he hear about the war with Amalek? What exactly did Yisro hear? It's a three-way debate. What Yisro heard that compelled him to come. But Yisro came, whatever made him come, he arrives. And he describes that uh, Yisro was, had reached the pinnacle in uh, foreign idolatry. He had reached the pinnacle of, of leadership. And yet he abandoned, gave it up to come and to join and to see the Jewish people. And um, he brings, he says, I have come to Moshe with your wife and with your two sons. Moshe goes out to meet his father-in-law and bows down and kisses him and asks how everyone is doing. And we have this incredible arrival. Vayichad Yisro akolatova. Yisro experiences chedva. Vayichad. It's even higher than simcha. It's a sort of it's kind of like a chedva. It's an existential joy. He is so uplifted. He's so happy to be with the Jewish people. After all, God had done with them to be able to reunite the family Moshe Tzipora and their and their sons. And Yisro blesses Hashem. He says, "Incredible, how amazing it is to be here." Just as an aside, Yisro's arrival is surrounded by great pomp and circumstance. Yisro's arrival is with great fanfare. Right? Yisro comes to the scene and the Torah dedicates great space to describe what happens. And this is this, uh, reunited with Moshe and he uh, embraces him. and uh, It's incredible. What about when Yisro... Does Yisro stay? Does he go? Does he leave? What happens? He leaves after. Well, in our own Parsha, he disappears. But in Sefer Bamidro, Yisro joins the Jewish people again. And then we're unclear. Yisro says, I have to go. Moshe begs him, please don't go. You have to stay. In a great deviation in the relationship between children-in-laws and in-laws. Moshe says, please don't go. You must stay. We can't take it. Does Yisro stay or go? We don't know. The Torah leaves it ambiguous. The Torah leaves it uh, bland. We don't know. It's a debate between the Ramban, Nachmanides, and the Sforno, whether Yisro stays or he goes. So I once suggested that it's unimportant. Torah doesn't want us to know about Yisro because we care about whether he stays or goes. His departure is not important. What is important is 
his arrival. The fact that he was so moved to join the Jewish people, that's what's so significant. In a world in which so many are spectators to the unfolding of their own lives, in a world in which so many people see so much happen around them and remain unmoved, uninspired, unmotivated by it, we open the newspaper, we turn on the internet, we read the headlines, we see the headlines, we hear what's happening in the world, and okay, so what? We turn the channel, we turn the page, we go to the next website. Nothing seems to move us or to jar us into action. Yisro is an exception because he is a call to action. Yisro hears the word everyone else heard. Yisro wasn't unique. He didn't get a unique telegram. The whole world heard about the splitting of the sea, the ten plagues, the, the triumph over Amalek. Everybody heard. But you know what they did? They turned the page and kept reading. They turned over and went to sleep. They had another sip of their coffee. And that was that. Yisro saw the headline. He said, Whoa! i got to react. Things have to be different. Life can't remain the same and he got up and he moved. So it's Yisro's arrival which is remarkable to us. It's not what happens to him ultimately is less important than the fact that he was so moved to join us. That's what we can be inspired by. Yisro, like any good father-in-law, doesn't take long after his arrival to dispense advice. advice. (laughs) Doesn't take him long to see something that his son-in-law is doing wrong and to offer his criticism. And so Yisro says to Moshe, what are you doing? They're lining up from morning till evening. They're taking forever. There's so many people. Why are you hearing everything? You should learn to delegate. You need to delegate if you're going to be an effective leader. And therefore you should set up a hierarchy, a system of courts, lower courts and higher courts and supreme courts. And only the issues that can remain unre- that remain unresolved, that cannot be resolved by others, only that should arrive to you, Moshe. Only that should come to your doorstep. Moshe, unlike many sons-in-law, does not reject or dismiss or rebel against his father-in-law. Who are you? What are you giving me advice? Thanks, Dad, but we know what we're doing. He says, that's a good point. And Moshe puts in place, applies the advice of his father-in-law. I heard yesterday from a colleague, a friend of mine, Rabbi Moshe Hauer of Baltimore, said a beautiful idea. Yisro's advice to Moshe and Moshe's acceptance of it wasn't necessarily to free up Moshe's time. What, now that Moshe was delegating, now he could pursue lowering his handicap in golf? He could improve his bowling score. He could read what he's always wanted to read. He could lie in the sun and get the tan he's always wanted to have. What Moshe was seeking all this free time, what was he going to do with this free time? Believe me, Moshe had other many, many, many virtuous things to take up his free time. So why was Yisro seeking for Moshe to delegate? If if Moshe's time would be filled anyway. Usually, why do we want to delegate? Because it'll free up time to pursue other things. Moshe's time was entirely dedicated to the Jewish people. So what was the goal? So Rabbi Howard suggested something beautiful. The goal of delegating was not to free up Moshe, but was to get more of the Jewish people involved. It was the idea of inspire yourself to inspire others. Our whole outreach revolution at Boker Raton Synagogue, Rabbi Brody and his leadership. It's the idea that the more people that you could delegate, that you could um, deputize, the more people who could become ambassadors who could be teaching and adjudicating and judging and inspiring, the more you'll empower people to embrace the message and share it with others, the stronger and the more penetrating the message becomes. So the goal suggested by Hour was not simply to free up Moshe's time, but Yisro's advice was, if you want this to penetrate and last and seep into the people, you want it to be a meaningful movement, 
then it can't rely on one charismatic leader alone at the top of the chain. But you need to delegate so that there can be a hierarchy, a system of leadership, chairmen and chairwomen and chairpeople and committees and more and more people who are excited, embracing and running with something. In fact, I spoke about last week, not only in the Hashkama Minyan and the Shtibah Minyan, so you may not have heard it, but the, the significance, the Pasuk last week, Le'aminu Bashem Uve Moshe Avdo. Very troubling Pasuk. What do you mean? They put faith in God and seemingly an equal faith in, in Moshe. Ve'aminu Bashem, the Pasuk links the two as if they're equal? They had faith in Hashem and in Moshe? What are you kidding me? Are we a religion of idolatry? Are we a religion that deifies our leader? How could it be? How could it be? The Balaturim says, indeed, there's a parallel between the two. So much so, writes the Balaturim in last week's parsha that if you accept the words of Chazal, it's like you're accepting the words of the Shekhinah of Hashem. If you reject the words of the rabbis, it's as if you've pushed away the words of Hashem. Because one has to have faith in our rabbis and the system as we do in Hashem Himself. But the Pasuk is troubling. The Al-Sheikh HaKadosh, my friend, my another colleague, Rabbi Shalom Baum, in Romer, in Keter Torah, and Tinek, pointed out this Ashach to me. The Ashach al-Kadosh says, no, Bashem Moshe Avdo, who are the ones who it took until that point to have faith in Hashem and equated it with faith in man, with Moshe? It was the Erev Rav. The rest of B'nai Israel, the authentic Jewish people, they had faith in God already in Egypt. And they didn't see God as equal to Moshe, God forbid. It was the Erev Rav that saw it this way. But what's really going on in this Pasuk? Even Ezra writes, and others that Vayaminu Bashem of Moshe Avdo means they had faith in God and faith that Moshe was an Evan Hashem. In other words, their faith was that Moshe was loyal to God. It wasn't faith in Moshe as if he were a God. It was faith in Moshe that he was Evan Hashem. The um, the Kedushas Levi of Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev expands on this further and says, you see, until then they thought to themselves, you know, this Moshe here in Egypt, he's telling us that he sees God, he talks to God, he feels God, his whole life is dedicated to God, it's Baruch Hashem, Amir Chasem, Be'ezrus Hashem, everything Hashem, come on, is he for real? Could you really know with such certainty that God exists? Isn't everyone filled with doubt? Come on, isn't Moshe a little holier than thou, a little righteous? Come on, come on, is it possible? And what happened, says the Kedushas Levi? They stood on the banks of the Amsuf. They stood on the shore of the sea. And at that moment when the sea split, they saw a vision we know. Shivcha alayam, the lowly maidservant, the lowly person saw a vision, a revelation greater than Yechezkel ben Buzi, than the great prophet Yechezkel. What they felt and saw and knew with certainty, not with faith that day, was something unprecedented and unparalleled. And therefore, because they themselves had experienced it, Vayaminu Bashem, not only did they feel God in their life, but Uv Moshe Avdo says the Kedushas Levi, they believed Moshe's capacity to see Hashem always with that level of revelation. It wasn't, oh, please, come on, Moshe, you're full. how could it be you see God all the time? Because they had seen God at that level, if for but a brief moment, they had faith that Moshe had the capacity to feel God in his life on an enduring level and an enduring way. But what do you mean faith in God and faith in Moshe? Torah doesn't want us to have faith in Moshe as a charismatic leader who is the one who has moved us. I spoke last week about an article that came out in a major Jewish newspaper about a certain uh, charismatic leader in a post-high school yeshiva in Israel. The Bobby Knight of post-high school yeshivas in Israel. And an expose on him. 
And in the article it says that half of his students said, He made me. He turned me into the religious person I am. I owe it all to him. And the other half of the students said, He destroyed me. His methodology, I want nothing to do with religion. I walked away just because of him. But both are equally wrong. Our relationship with Hashem shouldn't depend on, rely on, be made or broken by the charisma of any individual. The Drosh Saran, Rabbi Jonathan Rosenblatt once mentioned it here in our shul. Rabbi Baal mentioned it last week also. The Drosh Saran says, Why did God give Moshe a speech impediment? He was Kfad Peh, Kfad Lashon, Lo Ishtvarim Anochi. Moshe had trouble speaking. Moshe was no Tony Robbins, Lahavdil. Moshe was no Joel Olstein, Lahavdil, Elif Alfei Avdalas. These charismatic leaders who millions of people buy their CDs, download their MP3s, they have audiences around the world who are moved by them. Moshe couldn't string two sentences together. He had this horrible speech impediment. Says the Drosh Saran, Rabbeinu Nisim, you know why? Because God wanted the Torah to sell itself. Lest we, thousands of years later in 2012, say, you know this Torah? It's not real, it's not authentic, it's not genuine, it's not true. Our ancestors, our great-grandparents, you know why they bought into it? That Moshe? Boy, was he some speaker. Boy, was he a charismatic leader. Boy, was he persuasive. So God says, it's not the person who's going to sell the Torah. So the Torah is going to sell itself. So our relationship, the Torah does not want to be dependent on any one man who is a conduit, an intermediary. Our relationship should be directly with Hashem. Therefore, unsusceptible to being made or broken. Certainly our leaders inspire us, they motivate us, they lead us. But our, our relationship with Hashem should not be made or broken by man. So perhaps that's why Yisrael looks at Moshe and he says, If you remain the sole leader of the people, the only voice they hear... That's all they'll believe in is you. Their whole conduit to God, their whole connection will be through you. And indeed, that remains a problem. What happens to the Chaita Egel? Moshe delays in coming down. And what do the people say? Forget about it. Let's build an Egel. And Moshe says, If the people's entire relationship, God, with you is going to be through me, erase me from your book. I'm counterproductive. It's diminishing returns to have me. Erase me. So all of Chumash's Moshe trying to inspire the people, don't relate to God because of me. Relate directly to God. Unlike other religions, Lahavdil, we don't need a priest. The rabbi has no greater access to Hashem than you. Every one of us could open a sitter and daven, open our hearts and our minds and daven to Hashem. The rabbi is no greater. We all have equal access. We don't rely on the intermediary. So Yisra says to Moshe, delegate, share the wealth, empower people. You need as many charismatic leaders spreading the message as possible, not relying or dependent on anyone. Okay, we haven't started yet. We have to finish reviewing the Parsha and start the, the Parsha class. Yisra gives it advice. He leaves. They arrive at, yes? I'd like to know, Rashi explains it. What was especially unique about the two events that happened, that motivated the Good. Rabbi Fox asks very well, why these specific events? Rashi only quotes two. The Gemara Tzavachim has three possibilities. What motivated Yisrael to come? Was it Kriyas Yamsuf? Was it, the third I think was the, the, the plagues, the Makos? Or was it, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, it was Matan Torah. Was it Kriyas Yamsuf? Was it Matan Torah? Or was, even though it hadn't happened yet, maybe really the Torah is not rep- reporting it in chronological order. Was it Matan Torah? Was it Kriyas Yamsuf? Or was it the defeat of Amalek? 
And so Rabbi Fox asks, well, I actually want to give a shir on this statement for another time. What did Yisro see in those three events that moved him to come? So what? Okay, God split a sea. Great, why do I have to join the Jewish people? Perhaps the most perplexed, I'll give you a little hint. Perhaps the most, uh, the hardest one is, okay, so they defeated Amalek. By the way, they didn't even defeat him. Vayachalosh, Yehoshua just weakened Amalek. He didn't even defeat him. So what? So the Jewish people won a battle. You know, they went into Lebanon and they didn't even defeat Hezbollah. They just weakened him. Oh wow, I gotta move and join the Jewish people now. What about weakening the enemy moved him to want to come? So I once suggested that it wasn't the weakening of Amalek that inspired Yisrael. It was the inverse. It was the opposite. It was the fact that Amalek targeted the Jewish people. What do I mean? Amalek are and were the most wicked and evil people ever on earth. Their philosophy was corrupt. Their attitude was corrupt. Their entire approach was unethical. Their moral was, was evil, was wicked. And they had any nation in the world who they could attach themselves to, who they threat, felt threatened by, whom they wanted to attack and eliminate. And who was the nation they identified? The people of Israel. Now on the one hand, thanks but no thanks. We don't need that honor. On the other hand, indeed, it's a great honor. Because if the most wicked and evil nation feels threatened by somebody, what does it tell you about that somebody? That they are the epitome of good, of ethical living, of moral living. In some ways, it's indeed a compliment. Not a compliment we welcome or want. Right? I would describe the same as true today. The fact that Israel and America are linked together in being hated by a fundamentalist world tells you what about Israel and America? That our ideals are a light unto the world. They are goodness. There's an integrity. There's an ethical living. If what we perceive as the worst evil feels so threatened by and seeks to eliminate someone that someone must be good. So I think perhaps what Yisrael was inspired by was not the military acumen of the Jewish people, of Yoshua, that, the, that the, this fledgling nation was able to put together a group of, of, uh, of uh, soldiers to defeat Amalek. But it was the very attack of Amalek against them that said, Yisrael, huh, if this Amalek feels so threatened by this people who've only existed for 20 minutes, I want to see this people. There must be something special to see here. Okay, so the Jewish people now arrive at Har Sinai. God gives them a proposal. This is what we're going to study today. Of a bris, if you follow, if you listen. The day of revelation arrives. They come to the mountain. The Ten Commandments are given. The people can't stand hearing them all. Hashem only delivers the first two. There's a beautiful idea in the Tanya about that, which we're not going to have time for today. But we complete the Aseris Adibros, the thunder. They saw the thunder and the flames. What do you mean, Roim? you don't see thunder and flames? I'm sorry, you don't see thunder, you hear it. Sound of the shofar, the smoking mountain, um, and uh, Moshe said to the people, "Don't fear, don't worry, just be in awe of Hashem." And uh, that's the end of the parsha. Okay, that's an overview of this week's parsha. And now we get into the nitty gritty of the pesukim that I want to investigate in our remaining time together. What pasuk? We are going to begin from Revi'i, which is the beginning of Perak Yutes, chapter nineteen. Revi'i, chapter 19. If you're following in the stone Chumash, it's on page 400, even. Page 400, 401. Says the Torah. Right, we already gave us a, a sense of context. Moshe has just concluded the conversation with his father-in-law, and now we get back to the normal Pasuk Chavzayin, Vayishalach, Moshe Chosno. Moshe sends his father-in-law. He drives into the airport. Zay gesund. Enjoy. It was nice having you. Send a postcard. And Yisrael goes home. And that begins chapter 19. 
Revi'i Pasuk Aleph. Bachodesh Hashlishi. Let's say it's B'nai Yisrael Meretz Mitzrayim. Bayom Hazeh Ba'u Midbar Sinai. Where are we? We're in the third month after the Exodus, the third month after they left Egypt. They've been out now for three months. On this day, they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. Vayisum Mirifidim. And they traveled from Rifidim and they arrived in the Midbar, the desert. And they encamped in the desert. And they encamped there, opposite the mountain. We could spend four hours on these two psukim alone. We don't have it, so we'll try to move through here in a meaningful way. We're on the third month. This takes place in the third month. We're now on the first day of Sivan, right? It's the third month. Nisan, Iyar, the third month is Sivan, after they left Mitzrayim. So interestingly, what should we start with? Right? Rashi tells us that. Bayom says Rashi, Barosh Chodesh. We're on Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month of Sivan. Lo what is an unusual word in that Pasuk? What bothered Rashi? Why does it say in the third month after they left, Bayom on, would you say that day or this day? You'd say that day. If you're writing the Torah, you say, hey, you're telling the narrative, you're the, not the author, the narrator, thank you. You don't say, and it was in the third month after they left Israel, that on this day, you'd say, on that day. So why does it say Bayom Hazeh on this day? It should say Bayom Hahu on that day. Mao Bayomazeh, what does it mean this day? Says Rashi quoting Because this is a preamble, this is about to describe the story of receiving the Torah. And when one thinks about receiving the Torah, we shouldn't think about on that day, but rather we should think about on this day. Because every single day we accept the Torah. It's a very powerful, very important message. Our relationship with Torah is not based on thousands of years ago. It's not a contract. It's not a corporate arrangement from thousands of years ago that we remain bound by. But it's that each and every day that we wake up and open our eyes, we rebind ourselves. We recommit ourselves. We sign the contract once again. We connect and relate and accept Torah anew. Each and every day, Bayom Hazeh. Our relationship with Torah is not archaic and arcane and old. Our relationship with Torah is fresh. And real, in real time, each and every day. Fine. That's the opening Rashi. But there's some very puzzling questions here on this Pasuk. Bachodesh Hashlishi in the third month. One would have expected it to be the opposite. Start with Pasuk Beis. They traveled from Rifidim, they arrived in the Midbar, they camped out. And when was it? In the third month, the first day of the third month after they left. That's what normally we would expect to find. That's normally how the Torah relates. They traveled from here to there on this and this date. Not, and it was this and this date. They arrived in the desert. Oh, and how'd they get there? Because they left that destination and they came to this one. It's written in kind of a backwards, complex order. So why is it written this way? Says the Ramban, Nachmanides. It should have written, they left Rafidim, they encamped in the desert, when? On the third month. As it says earlier, Says the Ramban, you know why it's out of order? Because they were so excited. When they left Egypt, 
they knew that there was a dual goal, a parallel goal. It wasn't just about leaving Egypt. It wasn't just about where you're leaving. It was also and equally about where you're going. They knew they were arriving at a special place. Says the Ramban, according to the Ki Moshe Yigidlai, Moshe had told them, When Moshe told them, we're leaving, when he first told the Jewish people, while yet in servitude, I'm taking you out. God's taking you out. We're going. We're leaving this place. And we're going to arrive at a mountain and we're going to serve God there. They knew they had something to look forward to. It wasn't just freedom. They didn't just leave Egypt to become some secular um, national entity. They left to become a new religion, a new people. So therefore there was incredible excitement. There was an amazing anticipation. And that's why, says the Ramban, it doesn't first tell us where they left and where they came and then when. It tells us when, because they had been counting down each and every day. For those three months, the Jewish people couldn't wait. They were a kid in the back of the station wagon. Are we there yet? Are we almost there yet? Are we almost there yet? Three months, they were excited, not just to have left, but to find out when they were going to arrive. And that excitement expresses itself in the reverse order of the Psukim, as I state, so says the Ramban. There's a longer Ramban here, he goes on and makes a few more points, but that's the first point of the Ramban. The Orachayim HaKadosh also talks about this. Says the Orachayim Rechayim Ibn Atar, Hinei lama shakadam neut motzum chibasa yisbarach v'yisrael v'goda cheshko lasis lehem arusasam zosa Torah. Tiksha lama, so he says, I don't understand. We know that God had an amazing desire to give to bestow the Torah onto the Jewish people. The Jewish people had an amazing desire, as we just described, a great anticipation to be able to receive and accept the Torah. So Tiksha, if that's the case, says the Rachaim, you have a problem. Why not give the Torah right away? Why did they wait the three months? Why did God wait three months? Or as Charlie Harari expressed it this past Shabbos, he says in the business world when he was in real estate, the first thing he learned was, ABCs. Always be closing. You got an opening, close the deal right then. God took him out of Mitzrayim. That day, where should they have arrived? Har Sinai. Sign the contract that day. Why three months? Right? What happens in relationships often, says the Orachayim, one of the ways that you could communicate the intensity of your love is not to delay in making a commitment. Right? I'm not, I'm not endorsing getting engaged on the first date. Not necessarily getting in, endorsing getting engaged within three months. Obviously, it depends where you're from and what your expectations are and how fast the relationship develops. But the point is, a girl is dating a guy in the secular world, and it's been six years, she says to him, give me the ring or I'm out of here. Because the fact that you're taking so long to figure out if you love me makes me question your love for me. So Orachayim says... If God loves the Jewish people, why is He waiting three months? In the world that God comes from, the yeshivisha world that God lives, they should be getting engaged on the first date. So why did God... That, that, was, that was a joke. Why did God... Why did God wait three months? So if you'll say, it was a, it was a, it was a geographical problem. They came out of Egypt. God had this mountain picked out already. This was the place he was going to make the big engagement. He got the mountain picked out already. And it took three months to get there. 
So relax. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I want to get engaged to you at the specific event, the specific place. It's not till then. It's going to take me three months till then. Of course I love you. If you think that's why God delayed, says the Yorachayim. Halamatzinu, we found in the Medrash. Shafilu. When Avram sends Eliezer to go find a wife for Yitzchak, does it take Eliezer what should be the normal amount of time to journey? He has, says the Medrash, what we call every time I have Kvitsa it ends with a, a siren and flashing lights. That, a real Kvitsa supernatural Kvitsa doesn't end with points and a big fine. It means God made a Kvitsa He shortened the way. Eliezer arrived at the destination in a fraction of the time it normally should have taken him. So God could have done that here too. Seal the deal. Close the deal. If God was willing to supernaturally condense the way to have Eliezer arrive at the destination in a fraction of the normal time just for Yitzchak to find his wife then to, for God himself to marry his children that doesn't sound right for God himself to marry his beloved Jewish people should he not perform a kvitzas haderech? So God comes and in these Psukim says God explains. You know why? You know why the wedding is three months away and I'm not marrying you today, despite the fact that I, the Kala, am ready? Says God, you know why? Because you, the Chasan, the Jewish people, you're not ready yet. Since the Jewish people were living among the Egyptians for 210 years, and there they absorbed the contamination, the tumah, the impurity, and they therefore had the status like of Anida. And therefore they needed to, how does one go from a state of impurity to purity? A woman who is a nida, who is impure, not dirty or any of the inaccurate understandings of nida. But a woman who was who is Tmea, how does she become Tahora to be with her husband, to be reunited? She has to count. How long does she count? Seven clean days. Says the Rechaim HaKadosh, that's why the Jewish people counted not seven clean days, but rather seven weeks. When did we receive the Torah? How long after we left Egypt? If you have trouble with the math, think of it this way. We celebrate Pesach, it corresponds with leaving Egypt. What's the next holiday that corresponds with receiving the Torah? Shavuos. How long is Shavuos after Pesach? 49 days, the 50th day, 7 weeks. So God says, says the Orachayim, I the Ka, I'm ready. But the Chosen, he's Tameh, he's impure, he's still coming out of Mitzrayim, he's still under the influence, he's been molded and shaped by Mitzrayim. The Jewish people are still of an Egyptian way of thinking. And therefore I need to, pure, they need to undergo a purification, a refinement, before we're ready to wed, before we can have our holy union and matrimony. And how long does it take? 
the number seven, in the case of a woman, seven clean days, in the case of the people, seven weeks. And so therefore, the Rechaim is explaining the Pasuk. You know why it took three months? Let's say Spine Yisrael Meret Mitzrayim. To get the Jewish people out of Egypt. To get the Egypt out of the Jewish people. Beautiful Orachayim, right? And that's why it's the opposite order. Bayom Hazeh. On that day, then, when you can get the Egypt out of the Jewish people. So the Rechaim explains that God did love them and God did want to give them the Torah but it starts the third month let's say B'nai Yisrael because he had to bring B'nai Yisrael out of Egypt and he had to bring Egypt out of B'nai Yisrael before they were ready to get together. But the Rechaim continues and he's bothered. Vayisumi Rifidim. Kasha lama icher hamuktam. As the Ramban was similarly bothered, it should have first told us where they went from and where they went to, and then tell us the date of that travel. Why does it tell us first the date and only then where they traveled? You know why it's out of order? Because when you're love struck, you're out of order. That's what the Rechaim says. He says the Jewish people are love struck. God is love struck. Everybody's all fucked. Everybody's all out of order. Everybody can't think and put two things together. It's of course a problem, by the way. Because when do we have chasen classes and kala classes? When do we teach a chasen and kala all about marriage? Hopefully also the emotional parts of marriage, but the technical laws of family purity. In the weeks leading up to their wedding, and having been a person who's taught them, I can tell you, it's easier, it might as well be talking to that, that wall, this chair. That's about how much it's penetrating. Right? Because they're all fucked they're love struck, they're excited, they're counting down. They can't hear, they're not listening, they're not absorbing anything. So that's why these psukim are out of order. This is the most seminal event in all of history. This is why the world was created. The ultimate countdown, the giving of the Torah. You can imagine. The whole world is waiting. The angels are waiting. The world is waiting. God is waiting. This is it. So they're all out of order. So when the day finally arrived, they were all all confused off our clamp. They didn't go in the order of saying, oh, they went from here to here and it was this date. They just said, the day's arrived. It's the third month after we left. The day has finally come. The day has finally come. So the lack of order, says the Orachayim, is an expression of the excitement, of the joy, of the anticipation. That's what's going on. The Kliyakar is also bothered. Right? So we saw the Ramban was bothered in his answer. The Yorchayim is bothered in his answer. The Kliyakar is also bothered. Rei kama kiflayim nechtevukan. So many, so much repetitiveness. Umaya mikra chaser maya omer vayasumir fidim vayachanu b'midbar sinai neged ahar. Says the Kliyakar, just combine these two psukim into these few words. All of these lengthy two psukim could be combined and condensed into why did I have to first say 
This is a famous statement we'll get to in a second. It begins with the plural Vayachanu. And then it says Vayichan in the singular. So Tchila Amar Midbar Sinai, Vachakach Amar Stam Midbar. And it began by saying, it was the third year, Bo Midbar Sinai, they arrived at the Sinai Desert. Then it says, Vayachanu, they encamped where? Ba Midbar, just in the desert. Well, what happened to the Sinai? Sinai, and at first it describes the mountain as Har Sinai, and then it just calls it the mountain. So what's going on here? Again, if nothing else, understand the sensitivity to the psukim. We just read this here, the Kriyasa Torah. We keep moving. Kliyakar is bothered by seventeen questions: the repetitiveness, the redundancy, the change of the description, midbar Sinai to midbar, har Sinai to har, vayachanu to vayichan. What's going on here? V'nir shekol zareish lohe Yisrael reading the Kabbalas Torah, ad asher yeshalom b'neihem. So the Orachayim, the the Orachayim said the Jewish people were not ready to get the Torah. Why? They were impure. They had been molded and shaped and influenced and impacted by Egypt. You had to get them out of Egypt. Took seven weeks to get Egypt out of them. Only then could get the, get the Torah. That was the Orchaim. Kliyakar says that wasn't the problem. You know what the problem was? Why they couldn't get the Torah yet? They couldn't receive the Torah until they had achtas. Until they had peace. Until they learned to get along. See the Torah The Torah, its pathways, its way All the Torah is about Peace Torah is all about Producing and promoting And yielding a sense of peace And tranquility and harmony among people When people lack harmony When there is conflict When there is Fighting when there's disrespect and disregard, then there can't be Torah. Why? Because when people don't have one unified heart, you know what happens? They end up dividing Torah, and they end up living Torah differently, and they end up projecting as if there are multiple Torahs. The month of Sivan somehow is captured by the image of twins. The symbol of the month of Sivan is twins. What? In horoscope. In horoscope it's twins? Twins. What is it? Gemini. Gemini means twins? Yeah. So what, what, what I know from this? Okay. Right, right. It's the same thing. So in the world of astrology somehow, astronomy, astrology, the world of astrology, Sivan, the month of Sivan, is captured by the image of twins. What is twins about, says the Kliyakar? Twins are, on the one hand, two. There's much that divides them. They're two separate human beings. On the other hand, they stem from the same place. They're one. And somehow they're separate and different. On the other hand, they're the same and identical. And it's that image, it's this month, which symbolizes the backdrop and the background that Torah could be given. True, there are differences between us. There's diversity. Celebrating, valuing diversity. But we have to see what binds us. We have to celebrate the unity. So, Look, 
Rifidim is from the same letters as Parid, Prida, a separation, a chasm, a divide. Vayisumi Rifidim. They left the place of machlokas, of debate, of conflict, and they came to a place of unity. And only now in that place of unity could they receive the Torah. And that's why it goes from Vayachanu Yisrael, they, in the plural, to Vayichan in the singular. Because they themselves went from a place of thinking about themselves in the plural to thinking about themselves in the singular. A beautiful Kliyakar. So we saw the Psukim seem out of order. The Ramban deals with it by saying... How did the Ramban deal with it? This was the Simcha. This was their joy. So we told the date of their arrival because they were so excited they had been counting down. The Orachayim deals with it by saying that why is it out of order? Because they couldn't come yet until not only you took them out of Egypt, until you took Egypt out of them. The Kliyakah says, why couldn't they come? Nothing to do with Egypt. had to do with them. There was machlokas, there was period, there was divisiveness. When there's divisiveness and conflict, you're not ready and you cannot accept, and you cannot accept the Torah. Pasuk Gimel. Umosha Allah El Right. And by the way, this is the motto, of course, of Bokeraton Synagogue. On our emblem, on our logo, is this expression from Rashi. Look at Rashi, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, Like one person with one heart. See, a person has two arms and two legs, and there's a heart, and there are lungs, and there's a, a kidneys, but they don't act independently. They all feel united organically as one. The rest of the encampments was characterized by fighting and debates and divisiveness. Here they felt, at least for this brief moment, that's our motto, that's our philosophy, and that's why our tagline is valuing diversity, celebrating unity. Moshe now ascends to God, and God calls to him from the mountain and he says, Kosomar Leves Yaakov, Visagade Levnei Yisrael. So shall you say, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and shall you utter to the children of Israel. Now, there's a lot to talk about. We have very few minutes left, so I'm going to try to stay focused. There's a long Orachayim here who asks the following very compelling question Moshe goes up to God. Where? If he went up on the mountain, then why does it say, Vayikrai love Hashem Minahar? God called him from the mountain. He should already be on the mountain. Right? It says Moshe went up to God, and then God called to him from where? From the mountain. Why is God calling to him from the mountain? He's already up there with God. And why did Moshe go up without being asked? And where is Moshe? Because it sounds like later God's going to summon Moshe up to the mountain. So the Orchaim and the Kleokar ask all of these questions, difficult questions. But in our remaining, in our remaining few minutes together, I want to focus on this expression of speaking to Beis Yaakov and speaking to Bnei Yisrael. So the uh, look at Rashi, Kosomar, Thus shall you say. God calls Moshe and He tells him, Moshe, you should say the following to two separate populations, parallel populations. What do you say? Beis Yaakov says Rashi. We use those words, it immediately conjures up the image of a girl's school. Why? 
because Sarah Schneir had the great foresight, the incredible vision, the amazing courage to revolutionize education for women. She did it with the backing of the Chavetz Chaim and the Ger Rebbe, but she, she had the courage. She just went to them to make sure they wouldn't oppose it. But it was her vision, it was her courage that revolutionized education for women, for Jewish women and gave the name to her educational institution, which today is all over the world, called it Beis Yaakov. Why did she call it Beis Yaakov? Because of this Pasuk, this Rashi. When God, when Hashem tells Moshe, tell the people, who are the people? Beis Yaakov refers to the women. Mm-hmm. And they need to be instructed, Belashon Raka, in a soft way. So that's why it's Somar. The word Somar, and more, Aleph Memresh means, connotes soft, gentle, in a joft and, 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 and gentle way. But to the men, you tell them the sagade. That's in a commanding, demanding, strong, and powerful way. Levnei Yisrael. Onshem v'dikdukim piresh l'scharim. Says Rashi, the, the consequences, the punishment, the details of the mitzvahs, that was given to the men. Dvarim akashim kigidim. Right, the word v'sagade to tell over is connotes like gidin, sinews, which are very strong, which don't tear easily. Tell the men. Oh, that's what the yud. That's what the yud is for. In fact, I think the Balaturim says that yud is extra. Right, without the yud. Yeah, look at the Balaturim. Male yud, shetagid lehem yud dibros. What's the Yud? Aseris Adibros. Yeah. So here we have the difference between the Beis Yaakov of the women and Bnei Israel. The women you tell... Now, I don't understand. It's the same Torah. So if it's the same Torah... I feel bad we have five minutes left. This is the most important part of what I wanted to say. It's the same Torah. So why are you giving the same Torah differently to men and to women? And who's going to give it to them differently? What, what, women in a soft way, men in a harsh way. It's the same Torah. Don't they have to live it the same and absorb it the same? And observe it the same? And be inspired by it the same. It's as if there's two Torahs. There's the Torah you give to men. There's the Torah to give to women. Moreover, you see this in another Pasuk. Pasuk in Mishle says, Shema b'ni, listen my son to Musar avicha, yaltito shtoras imecha. Listen to the Musar of your father and don't uh, forsake the Torah of your mother. Again, there's two Torahs. What are you talking about having two separate Torahs? So I'll tell you a beautiful insight by Rav Meir Shapiro, the founder of the Dafyomi, the great Lubliner-Rav, the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva Chochmei Lublin. So Rav Meir Shapiro explains, he says, you know, when someone becomes sick, when someone is suffering or struggling, you could, t- you could give them medicine in one of two ways. You could give them a pill or you could give them a shot which will help them directly. Or, you could pump into the air, into the room, a salve, the medicine, the antidote that will heal them, that will permeate, that will be pumped through the air of the room itself. The difference is, when you give it directly to the person, it helps that person, but doesn't have an effect on anyone else. And when you pump the air into the room, then it has an impact, a healing impact, on everybody, on anybody in the room. So he says the same is true with the universal illness of the Sahara, With the challenges that we universally fight in terms of our inclination, our temptation, 
that which seduces us. So men follow the prescription of the Gemara that we get rid of this Yetzirah. How? Through Torah. Through Torah study. Through taking our own independent medicine. But Jewish women, they are responsible for warding off the spiritual illness through the home. Jewish women pump the antidote through the very air pump that permeates the home. They imbue the home with an atmosphere that is holy and that is healing, that is spiritual and that is elevating, that not only helps themselves, but helps everyone around them. That's why, because they're having that impact on everyone, Shema Bini Musar Avicha. You have to listen to the Musar of your father because he's giving an injection. He's giving it directly. But when it comes to your mother's impact on you, it's not a matter of actively listening. It's don't forsake it. Her impact is through osmosis. She's pumping it into the atmosphere, into the air. You grew up, grow up under her watch. You will by definition, by default, through osmosis, be impacted. Don't forsake it. Don't walk away from that impact she has had on you. The father's lessons, you have to listen to. The mother's wisdom permeates the very air of the home. How does it permeate the air of the home? By the way, that's why the, um, the, the Torah tells us, Beso, the Mishnah says, Beso zu ishto. When the Pasuk describes the Kohen Gadol, he was machaper ba'ado va'ad beso. He he, um, the kohen gadol, the high priest, receives atonement for himself, forgiveness for himself, and ba'ad beso for his his home. What does it mean? His house, his walls, the bricks, the mortar, the stone, the wood. Beso zu ishto. A woman is the akeres abayis. The woman is the home. You could have a house, but the woman is the home. She creates that atmosphere that's going to transform. Rabbi Salavechik described. You know what these two Torahs are. But Salavedic, in an article in Tradition, wrote so incredibly beautifully. I wish I had more time. Said, I'm quoting Rabbi Salavechik. People are mistaken in thinking that there's only one Masora and one Masora community, the community of the fathers. It's not true. We have two Masoros, two traditions, two communities, two Shalshalos HaKabbalah, the Masora of the fathers and that of the mothers. Ko Samar He quotes our Pasuk. Here, my son, the instruction What's the difference between these two Masoros, these two traditions? What is the distinction between the Musar Avicha and the Torah Simecha? Let us explore what one learns from the father and what one learns from the mother, says the Rav. One learns much from the father. How to read a text, the Bible, the Talmud. How to comprehend, how to analyze, how to conceptualize, how to classify, how to infer, how to apply. One also learns from the father what to do and what not to do. What is morally right and what is morally wrong. Father teaches the son the discipline of thought as well as the discipline of action. Father's tradition is an intellectual moral one. That is why it is identified with Musr, which is the biblical term for discipline. What is Torah Simecha? What kind of Torah does the mother pass on? I admit, says the Rav, that I am not able to, deli- to, de- to define precisely the Masoretic role of the Jewish mother. Only by circumscription I hope to be able to explain it. Permit me to draw upon my own experiences. I used to have long conversations with my mother. Listen to what the Rav writes. It's remarkable. In fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. She talked and I happened to overhear. What did she talk about? She taught. What did she talk about? I must use a halachic term in order to answer this question. She talked me'inyane de yoma. I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of a holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the Sidra every Friday night. 
and I still remember the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in formal compliance with the law, but is also a living experience. She taught me there is a flavor, a scent, a warmth to mitzvot. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of His hand resting on my frail shoulders. Without her teachings, which quite often were transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up a soulless being, dry and insensitive. You know, Rabbi J.J. Shachter points out, understand what the Rav just said. The Rav learned, never in a yeshiva, the Rav learned with his father, he sat day in and day out learning Gemara with his father, Rambam with his father, Masechta after Masechta. And despite that, he says, without my mother, I would have been a soulless being, dry and insensitive. The laws of Shabbos, for instance, writes the Rav, were passed on to me by my father. They are part of Musar Avicha, the laws. The Shabbos is a living entity. As a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. It is part of Torah Simecha. The fathers knew much about Shabbos. The mothers lived the Shabbos, experienced her presence, and perceived her beauty and splendors. The fathers taught generations how to observe the Shabbos. Mothers taught generations how to greet the Shabbos and how to enjoy her 24-hour presence. Musar Avicha v'Torah Simecha Kosomar Lebeis Yaakov v'Sageid Levnei Yisrael there isn't one universal approach. Fathers and mothers have equal responsibilities but separate roles in living and in communicating and inspiring. It's very important. There's a journal that came out. You can only read it online. It's called Klal Perspectives. I wrote for the inaugural copy, the inaugural issue. They have their second issue just came out. And it's on the question of the role of women. The, the ever-changing, the evolving role of the Jewish woman. Fascinating. Very diverse spectrum of, of authors write for it. Very, very interesting. But one of the common themes that comes out is that we need to do a better job in educating tomorrow's mothers and fathers. We can't just give them one mold of an education. But we need to train Jewish girls. What does it mean to be an Akeris Abayas? How do you create and pump into the atmosphere of a Jewish home what the Rav describes his mother did? What is Torah Simecha, Sageid Levnei, the Kosomar Leves Yaakov? We need to teach young men what does it mean to be a Balabayas? What does it mean that he's going to be responsible for Musar Avicha, the Sageid Levnei Yisrael? We can't just throw at them one generic education. We have to teach them and train them and shape them into an Akeris Abayas and into a being a balabayas, we have to train them separately but equally into the roles they need to emerge in if we're going to maintain both of these critical elements in the transmission of our sacred Torah. So, Kosamar Leves Yaakov, Sageid Levnei Yisrael, Torah Simecha, Musar Avicha, the Rav's words are very beautiful. We'll stop here.